Well, two weeks ago, when we were assembled together last like this, um, we, we started into a new series. And what we're aiming to do in this new series is to really dig in and understand practically what it means to live in light of that great claim that we read about in Matthew 28, 18. It's from the declaration of Jesus that precedes the Great Commission command, go and make disciples of all nations, right? And then his great promise that he will constantly be present with his people. In verse 18, before all that, we read, Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. So what we began to look at in that first week of that series when we were in here was God, as the creator of all things, which we see revealed to us in Genesis 1 and Psalm 104, the biblical position, the biblical reality that we're supposed to be living in mind of is that since all things have been created and sustained by God, we said since everything exists, it's, it's his creatures, right? Then he has authority over all aspects of his creation. So this is week one. This is the foundation. And if you haven't listened to that message, I'll encourage you, you're going to want to probably go back and listen to that message because we're going to build on that principle right there, that God has all authority over all things because he is the creator, the sustainer of all things. So this is going to spill over into every other sphere of life, every other aspect of human existence, and that's what we're exploring throughout this series. As we've heard, a text that I think is so beautiful and important to us, we've studied it in a previous series as we walked through that book, Jesus, the one whom we worship, the Savior and God that we have come to worship, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church." He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, the one whom, whose name we bear as Christians, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, so he is the ruler of all things. And this claim in Matthew 28, 18 is a radically important statement that should be brought into our thinking in every sphere of our lives, in everything that we do, in every place we interact, and in everything we consider should all be seen under this idea that Jesus has authority over all. That's what this series is all about. That's why it's titled All Authority. So we're moving this morning into the second week of our series, and, and we're moving from creation and the start of Genesis 1 to the end of Genesis 1, and we're going to consider a topic that's radically under attack in our world today, something we need to be mindful of, something we need to be very clear in our thinking about. We're going to look at what it means that God has all authority, specifically over the areas of gender and identity. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 26 this morning. So really, we're, we're picking up right where the narrative essentially left off from our previous series as we talked about God's creation of the rest of creation, all of this universe and everything that lives within it. We read about this pinnacle work of God starting in Genesis 1, 26. We'll read to verse 31 here to begin. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with the seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to the beast of the earth and to the bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As I mentioned in our first week of the series, we, we touched a little bit on Genesis 1, and then we jumped to Psalm 104 because this is a pretty familiar passage of Scripture to so many of us if we've grown up in church or been around church for quite a while. But today, we're going to stick right here in this text, in this section right here, and unpack it because it is foundational and crucial to be able to answer fundamentally this myriad of questions and challenges that we're presented with today in our world. So here's what I want to convey. And I know very well that I'm running a bit of a risk by dealing with this whole topic in one sermon and not trying to unpack and explain and counter every single argument that exists all on its own. I could, I could spend weeks discussing all the different terms that are being created and argued about and constantly redefined today, but we're not going to do that. What I'm aiming to do today is to go to the main point, to the very most clear biblical truth that if you and I would hold on to firmly, if we would grasp it clearly, answers all these other objections that come. So no matter how complex the arguments you find or hear may be, it's going to come back, I believe, in almost every case to this fundamental truth. If you hold on to it, you can answer the arguments with what we find here revealed in this text. The key idea is this. God makes a person, male or female, as part of his very good design of them individually. This is what the Bible teaches about creation of humanity, about creation of men and women, that, that this is the truth, that if we believe this, this is the foundation to stand upon to begin to engage all those other arguments that come about. God makes a person male or female as part of his very good design of them individually. If we will hold on to this truth, if we will see this truth and be able to explain this truth, then we can strive to honor God as our creator. We can respect his authority over us as his creation. And we can reject the premises that undergird everything from transgenderism to homosexuality, bisexuality, and every other ever-evolving category that we see come about in our world today. If we don't hold to this truth, if we're compromised in believing this statement right here, if we question or deny that God is the one who makes a person male or female, and that's part of his intentional design that's very good, then we can fall prey to one or many of the arguments or assertions that our culture is pushing all around us. So let's notice in Genesis 1 right here, there are several really important things that are conveyed that we need to be familiar with and able to look to and then explain when we have these type of conversations, which are going to be more common today than they ever have been before. We need to look at the text and see this so you can be resolved in your thinking. Notice this point first. God created mankind in his image. That's an important phrase. In theological terms, we speak of this as the imago dei. It means the image of God, which is what we see rendered here for us. It exists in every single human being that God has created. 
The phrase here in verse 26 says that man, which in the Hebrew, when it says that God created man in his image, it's, it's used in the absolute sense. So it's, it could be better rendered mankind or humanity. God created mankind in his image after his likeness. What this tells us is that there's no distinction here between those whom God has created in his image and those who God created in the image of something or someone else. Wealth, status, skin color, gender, None of that changes or lessens or removes the image of God that he has created every human being to bear by his creative decree. God made humanity, all of us, in his image. And this is the key difference between us as humanity and everything else that exists. The imago Dei is what makes us higher than the animals that he created first. It's the image that we bear. It's what makes us unique from the angelic creation. It's why the Bible tells us angels look at us and our experience of salvation and the relationship we have with God with awe and wonder. Because we have this, the imago dei in us, the image of God that we have been created to bear. This is, under, is at the root of it. This is underneath everything. It's what gives all of humanity dignity. If we believe that every human being is created in the image of God and bears the image of God as part of humanity, then we understand that we must respect and honor one another. We must protect the vulnerable and the weak. All of this flows from this declaration here, this truth that God creates humanity, mankind, in his image. Second, notice here from this first part of Genesis, God created mankind to be either male or female. There are two human beings created in the garden, one male and one female. Genesis 1.27 tells us, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's through a form of Hebrew poetry here, which may not be as familiar to our natural way of thinking in, in our society, but in the Hebrew poetry that's being used here, the point's very clear. <clears throat> God is the creator of mankind. We are his creatures. And since he has made us according to his perfect design, remember, when God creates, he simply had spoken everything into existence, right? Let there be this animal, and the whole animal exists, right? He didn't have to let there be a bone connected to that bone and put a muscle here, right? He just said, let there be, there was. This perfect design unfolded exactly as he intended by his creative power. And so mankind is no different. He created us perfectly, intentionally, as he wanted us to be. And that includes the distinction between male and female human beings. So we must affirm both human beings, uh, male and female, are created and actually bear the image of God personally, as he just said, right? Men are not the image of God alone. Women are not the image of God alone. Both of us bear the image of God in us as human beings in equal ways, but in perfectly distinct ways that were designed by God. Third, God blessed and called mankind very good. Notice, that's verse 28, God blessed them, this first man and first woman. And in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is what God calls his human creatures, the ones he made at creation. God did not make a mistake in creating one man and one woman, right? He didn't feel like humanity was limited because he had created one male and one female, just this binary set of options. The creative design of God did not result in him saying, eh, the quality, it's a little off. It'll get better over time. It'll be very good one day when people start to view gender not as the difference between a male and a female, but as a spectrum, and there's gender fluidity, and then humanity will be very good. Here, it's just okay. In the garden, humanity is just okay. 
No, he says in the garden, right there, one male, one female, this is very good. Exactly what he designed, exactly what he intended, very good. God declares this clearly, forcefully, that though we are distinct between male and female, both equally bearing the image of God, we are created very good, according to him. And then notice number four. God gives humanity here in the garden a real but limited authority over creation. That's really what's in verses 28 to 30. And I'm not going to reread them again because you heard them just a moment ago. But if you see in those verses, humanity's given dominion over all the other creatures that God has made, right? Over this physical world he's put us on. He's given this command. But notice it's a command of limited authority. It's the authority of stewardship that he is giving to his human creation. He does not give humanity unlimited authority, total sovereignty over this world that he's placed us in. This means that the dominion mandate given to humanity is the authority to use and steward well creation, but not the, not the authority to redefine creation. We're not going to improve on God's design. That's not the charge he gave us. We're called to recognize the perfection of what God has made and then enjoy these things that God has made. We're to steward them well, not to change them, not to build upon them. God's glory is seen as we live in light of his ultimate authority over his creation, and we live with the lesser authority that he has given to us to care for and utilize well the creation he's put us in. Now, these four truths are all drawn here from the text. I hope you see exactly how those came about out of the text. We walked through, you heard the whole text, then you saw each point built out, and hopefully you go, that makes total sense. If, I'm, if I wrote them down, then I look at the passage, I go, Yes, I see all of that there, and I hope you will do something like that because you'll need to get these in your mind because this is what you need to unpack with that key affirmation that we are holding to, right? That God makes a person, male or female, as part of his very good design for them individually. Like This is the foundation for us to stand firm upon. And for most of human history, what I've said here and what we just unpacked from those verses and these key truths, this teaching has been celebrated by God's people. It's been seen as something beautiful and very impactful upon, upon human beings and how we then are to live. But right now, where we live in the world in particular, but just in the world in general, in this modern age, we live in a time of such abject rebellion to the authority and rule of God that this very claim is under attack. Today, what you and I have is the, the challenge of dealing with what we can call the trans movement. Typically, you see that term trans attached to the idea of gender, so transgender movement. It can also be attached to the idea of sexuality, the transsexual movement. Those are things that are, are really deeply related, but in, in modern society are broken out into kind of two separate, sort of connected things. And we're going to deal mostly this morning with this idea of gender and this idea of the transgender movement and some of the things that they promote that go right against this key idea that you and I as biblically based Christians, people believing the word of God, have to hold to. So to, to kind of illustrate what we're looking at, what we're talking about here is we see often now, if you read the news or you watch TV, it's, it's all over the place now, is this idea that a person will claim that she's really a man even though she was born as a woman. And so she wants to identify with this other gender and wants you know have her name changed to be referred to by masculine pronouns, right? We see this, someone who's 
born one way, wanting to identify that way. It goes the other way too, right? Someone who says, I'm, I was born a man, but I'm really a woman, and so I want to identify this way. You've, you've seen this take place if you've uh, looked at pop culture. Uh, it's being forced, like I said, into our view all over the place at every turn. So most of you are probably familiar with the story of Bruce Jenner, right, who's a man who publicly declares he's a woman, changes his name legally to Caitlin, and begins to try and live as the opposite gender from what he really is. And you have all other kinds of men following this pattern today too, right? Like if you've been watching the news recently, you've been watching things around sports, you've been seeing this, this idea of men identifying as women is just going to destroy women's sports entirely. And we're seeing that play down. There's all these battles that are going on. And you're, the fight really comes down to this ideology that all these complex arguments being made, no, the root of it is this. It's a rejection of this belief of the Christian faith. And so, you know, we can look at what the NCAA is saying and all the argumentation of the activist groups. Think it's really complex and you've got to define terms. At the end of the day, we know where we stand if we believe this. That's why we need to hold to this. And it's not just men trying to become women in our society. You see it go the other way, too. You have women saying that they are men. They want to present themselves that way. Um, some of you may know the name Ellen Page. She was an actress. Uh, who has decided she's actually a man, and so she's transitioned and now is, uh, wants to go by the name Elliot Page and uh, be seen as a man and, and live in that way, right? So our culture is being swept up with this, and it goes both ways, men to women, women to men, back and forth. You can see all this, and our culture is demanding that you and I must not only be okay with all this, we have to accept it, we have to celebrate all of this. This is seen as normal and good, and everyone needs to be on board with the movement. If you're not, well, you're on the wrong side of history, right? You've heard that phrase. This is the reality that we're dealing with right now. So in many ways, I think this issue of transgenderism today is the problem it is today. It's more pressing on us to really think through and be able to respond to than at any point in history because of the abuse and the twisting of God's common grace blessings in medical and scientific technology. So today, people can claim just not, not just a transgender identity. They're not, uh, they're not satisfied to just say, my name is now Caitlin, call me a woman, and refer to me as a woman. It goes much farther than that. They're able to use medical scientific technology to transition from one gender to the other. But I want us to understand clearly as Christian thinkers, that's simply a euphemistic term. There is no such thing as truly transitioning from one gender to another. What's happening in that is a mutilation and a destruction of a body to try and force the external appearance to align with their self-proclaimed gender identity. And I wrote those words very carefully in what I said. They're very strong, but you need to understand it in that light because you need to see how tragic this idea of transition from one gender to another really is. You and I should mourn and lament the abuse of medical and scientific technology in this way. There are lives that are being completely destroyed by these so-called transitions. Especially for these young people, kids, teenagers, young adults who are going through these transitions, they are utterly destroying their bodies and their future lives through what they are doing, these acts of mutilation. And so you and I should mourn that and lament that and pray about that, and we should be angry, I get it. There's a place for right anger towards these so-called medical experts who are pushing and performing these destructive acts. That's complete betrayal of the trust that we should have in someone called to heal and called to improve the quality of life of someone. But you and I should be mourning for those who, are, who go through this by their own choice or who are deceived into it. We should mourn that and pray for them. The reality is a person remains 
created a male or female by the very good design of God. And no matter how hard that's rebelled against, that never actually changes. Bruce Jenner is still a man. Elliot Page is still a woman. No matter the name change, no matter the pronouns they want to use, no matter what scientific medical technologies they have. They may alter their appearance, they may legally identify and present as the opposite gender, but it does not change the reality of how God actually made them. All of this is a playing out of a fundamental denial of the truths of Genesis 1. It's a denial of what we affirm because we as Christians are submitting to the word of God and the authority that he has revealed in the scripture to believe that it is God who makes a person male or female as part of his very good design of them individually. Now, naturalistic, humanistic, non-religious people completely reject that teaching, right? They just reject the idea of God's authority, even reject the idea of God's existence. And as we know from week one, what that is is simply foolishness and folly of a world in rebellion and sin. But there are others today, and this is where it gets more difficult sometimes for Christians to, to deal with this topic. There are some today who want to claim to be transgender and still claim a Christian identity. So you might hear this argument from someone who says, I'm a Christian transgender person. They might say, no, I, I agree with your assertion. God creates everyone male or female. There's only two genders by his design, exactly as it says in Genesis 1. But... But, the transgender person might say, God simply created me as the wrong gender on the outside. He made me a man on the outside, but I'm really a woman on the inside, or vice versa. Now, listen, you might think, that's, that's kind of silly. Who would, who would say that? This is the real argument. It's not hypothetical. I, it's exactly what I have heard from transgender people who are trying to claim a Christian identity and want to be seen and referred to as transgendered Christians. In fact, this is not just, again, a hypothetical. This is not I've watched some videos or I've talked to some other people who have told me about this is the reality of a man who attended my former church in Springfield, still actually attends that church, who is living in this and making this exact argument right now. He's born a man. He has now legally changed his name. He dresses and presents as a woman, is undergoing the medical treatments to try and make his male body appear to be a female body. And it's a tragic situation. It's incredibly sad. My heart breaks for him and for his soul. Because hear me clearly, someone who believes these things and lives this way is not living as a Christian. It's abject rebellion against God to embrace these things. It is sinful slander against God to claim that he made a mistake in creating you as either the male or female he made you to be. And it is idolatry to act as if you are your own God who can fix a mistake the one true God made. It is sinful arrogance and pride to claim that you know more. You understand yourself better than God Almighty does. To claim that he did wrong. He erred in making you male or female. That is a rebellious and sinful claim. And a true Christian cannot make that. Cannot stand in that claim. These words from the book of Romans should be very sobering and should stop the mouth of anyone who professes to be a Christian and would want to charge God with error or with making a mistake in how he has created someone in humanity. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 to 21 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? 
Paul is drawing upon imagery and argumentation that's used in several other places in the Bible. Most notably comes from the prophet Isaiah where he writes this in Isaiah 45 verses 9 to 12. Listen to how perfectly this applies to the argument that somebody might put forth. Isaiah writes, Woe to him who strives with him, God, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles, right? You've made me wrong, right? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, mankind. Ask me of things to come. For will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? God says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their hosts. This is God's response to those who would claim he's made a mistake. He didn't know what he was doing. He misunderstood me. No, God says, I knew exactly what I was doing. I have created all things. I sustain all things. I am perfect in all things. Who are you, little earthen pot, to question me, the great potter? So true Christians must believe and affirm What the Bible teaches, God does not make mistakes. It is arrogant and it is sinful to accuse God of making a mistake in creating someone, either male or female. It is brokenness and it is bondage to sin that would lead someone to believe that externally we are a different gender than the one we are truly inside. And it is rebellious and it is sinful to try and change our gender presentation on the outside to conform to whatever we feel like we are on the inside. There is a lot that we can and we probably should have conversations talking about and thinking through this topic together. But rather than go down the myriad of argumentation that exists, I want us to get this main point, this foundational truth that we need to hold to firmly and then be able to back up through those points that we unpacked from Genesis 1. The reality is that we have to affirm God's authority extends over our gender and sexual identities. These are not matters disconnected from God Almighty. He has authority over them. He rules over them. He has things to say about them. And we, his creatures, must submit to him, must obey him, must follow him in these things. To believe the root of the transgender argument that a person is really one gender on the inside but was just put into the wrong body or has the wrong gender externally is to deny the basis of our faith that God is perfect, that he is the creator who has made us, and that he rules over all aspects of our lives in perfect wisdom. So Christians need to stand firm on the revelation of who God is. We need to hold fast to this belief that our God is our creator who makes no mistakes in how he has created us or rules over us as his creatures. We must believe, submit to, and teach that God's authority extends over whether a person is born male or female and that it is part of his very good design. God's in control of all of this. He rules over all of this as the all-powerful creator. So not only does God determine this aspect of our reality, how we are physically made, but as Christians, we need to affirm and live in light of the the second part of that, the fact that it's part of a very good design on the part of God, right? This isn't something we should just go, well, 
all right, I'll begrudgingly submit to this idea that he's made someone either a male or female. We should embrace this and celebrate this. The design is good, very good, beautiful, providing wonderful things to humanity as a whole. We need to see those things. We need to see the purpose. We need to see the good in it that we can express as either a man if God has made us to be a man or a woman if God has made us to be a woman. Men and women are equal, image bearers of God, right? There's no distinction in that category from the Lord in Genesis 1, but we are different, and we should celebrate that. We should lean into the distinctions between male and female. We should uh, use the gifts that accompany being made, a male or a female, both personally and corporately. We should model the goodness of these things and how God has created gender to our world. It's an important part of our witness in these matters. It's not enough to just stand back and go, hey, God's done this. It's one or the other. It's binary choice, and that's it. We should go further than that and say, and it's not just that. It's a good thing that it's this way. Look at the beauty of this creation. Look at the good things that come from this creative design of God. The goal of embracing who God made us to be, including whether he made us to be a male or a female, should lead in us a heart of praise to God, just like David has when he writes in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. I mean, listen to this. Listen to how he speaks to God about God's creation of him. David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as when yet there were none of them. David's expressing this worship of God, this beautiful expression of praise to God for how he was made. Someone who's bought the transgender argument doesn't express, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. They express, you've made a mistake in making me this way. That should not be us. All the details and the aspects of who David were, they're there by the design of God. David wasn't questioning, God, did you make a mistake making me a man? I mean, I'm talented with the lute and have a beautiful singing voice. Should I really have been a a beautiful woman? No, David said, this is part of how you've made me. And this gift that you've given me fits into the gift you've given me as the warrior who slays thousands and thousands of people. You've created me in this way as a man, and Lord, I praise you for it. In fact, David would have never entertained the thought that God had made a mistake in how he made him. He celebrated God's good design, and he praised God for his creative work. So going back to, to the text that I read in the introduction, I want us to hear again the authority and the rule of Jesus as the creator of all things, and then I want to hear how the message of the gospel must be brought by us into these conversations and how we look upon these issues, right? So again, we're going to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Hear again how it sets up and then what it flows right into. Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Here's what I want for us as we, as we prepare to, to kind of take this conviction and this belief with us out of here and into a world where you will have to defend if you believe what we've talked about today. You will have to give an explanation because our culture, our society is pushing past it. They're pushing you to say, get on our side, accept this, celebrate this. And if you're going to reject that and you're going to push back, you're going to have to know how to do it. But here's what I want you to be able to do is not just to explain, this is what the Bible teaches, this is what I believe, this is what I'm submitting to. I want you to see how the gospel weight should bear upon us and those conversations too. Look, for the person whose sinful and rebellious nature, whose hostility of mind has led to them living in alienation from the God who created him as a him or her, has led them to believe, accept, and even perhaps participate in the evil, destructive sins of transgenderism or transsexual movement. Hear this, there is forgiveness and reconciliation, and change that can be found in Jesus Christ. That lifestyle, those beliefs, all those actions that go with the entire trans movement, they are, we should be clear on this, uncompromised on this, sinful and rebellious. But we must also remember that Jesus came to save sinners and rebels. No one is too far gone for Jesus to save. If, if anyone would look to Christ, any sinner would look to Christ and submit their heart, their mind, their life to him, put their faith and trust in him, then they can experience salvation and redemption and change. So the transgender person who comes to truly know Christ can't remain a transgender Christian. Those are exclusive categories. A Christian who was once a transgender person will be led to repent of those sins, to turn away from those rebellious actions, to repent of claiming that you know better, that you are the God of your own life, that the actions perhaps you took in your rebellion to try and change who it was God has made you to be, you will have to repent of those. A truly saved person can and will reject the entire transgender, transsexual identity. And instead, they will begin... What, what we should admit, if you think about what those procedures do and all the actions that can be taken in that movement, what will be incredibly hard and incredibly complex work, but they can begin to submit their life and their identity to being defined by God and his authority as the creator of all things, who does not make mistakes, who always knows best in how he rules. They can begin to submit their life to him, repent of their sins and their rebellions, and turn to Jesus away from the lies of these movements and experience grace and forgiveness and power that he has to redeem and restore and change. So Christians, we must pray for those who are trapped by these sins, these very destructive sins. We must pray and we must work to encourage people in this movement to turn to Jesus and to submit to him. 
He is the God who saves sinners and rebels. There are none too far gone for his grace. So you and I must be people who proclaim that and live like we really believe that part of this message to be true too. Not just that that's wrong, but that there's forgiveness and reconciliation and change to be found in Jesus. Because the text says, if you're paying attention to this, if you're applying this to yourselves, it speaks to us who have perhaps different sins and different issues, but the text says we were all once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. But he has reconciled us in his body of flesh, in his death, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. So you too were captives to sin. You too were held bound by things that would destroy your soul and your life. But he saved you. He reconciled you. He changed you. That's the message we then carry to others. This, our hope, our salvation is what we proclaim to everyone caught in any type of sin. Trusting that God saves from all kinds of sins. So we need to keep that in mind as we navigate this in our culture, as we have these conversations, as we see these conversations unfolding around us. Now, I understand clearly we've covered quite a bit of ground in a topic that's somewhat uncomfortable perhaps to some of you. And our next sermon is going to be a little bit more of the same. <laughs> so next week, we're going to talk about the issues of marriage and sexuality. Uh, we rearranged our schedule a little bit. We were going to have Family Sunday next week, and uh, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to have the kids in kids' church. So if you have young ones that um, you think this might be a little bit more than a conversation they're ready for, then we have kids' church ready for them. Um, but we're going to talk about what it means that God's authority extends over that. And we're not going to talk just about the transgender argument. We're talking about homosexuality, which is very uh, prevalent in our society as well. Because these are very important issues in our day and age. And you and I, we need to stand firm on biblical belief. We need to be clear on what it is the Bible teaches and what it is that we are affirming. And we need to be people who live with a gracious love and care and proclamation of the gospel to other people. Amen. So we need all this together. <clears throat> So we'll do it in two weeks, <clears throat> two sermons, rather than me doing an hour and a half today, which was my initial draft of all of this. So you're welcome. We'll get to talk about it next Sunday. <laughs> Wendy, team, if you will come this morning, we're going to take a few minutes to respond. Because it's an uncomfortable topic, it's a hard topic, it's perhaps in some cases a topic we never thought we'd have to talk about or deal with. Maybe we thought, you know, Nelsonville and Philadelphia and Palmyra, we're, we're pretty isolated. That might happen in St. Louis, but... We're good. No, it's, it's around us, all around us. And this will only become more prevalent as our culture moves farther and farther away from God. So we need to fully believe these truths without caveat. We need to understand he has authority over all aspects of creation. He's always good and his ways are always right. So we need to ask him to help us that we would live out the goodness and the beauty of his design and these beliefs, that we'd be faithful witnesses to this truth in our interactions in this world. Let's respond in prayer and ask the Lord to help us in these ways. We'll sing and we'll worship and then we'll close for this morning. You can stand, you can come to the altar, you can pray where you are. But let's respond to the Lord and his word today. Lord, as we respond to you in, in prayer, humbling our, our own hearts, Lord, asking you to help us be faithful witnesses. I also pray, Lord, for every man and woman in this room, every boy and girl, Lord, that we would, in our own hearts, do the work of, of wrestling with, do, do we understand who you've created us to be? Lord, help us, I pray, live as, as men who would reflect the goodness of masculinity in this world. 
to live as women who would embrace the beauty and the value of femininity in this world. Help us, God, be bright beacons of hope, messages of, of, of reconciliation and the beauty and intentionality and the goodness of your design to those around us. Lord, let us model something attractive to this world because we're living in alignment with who you've made us to be and what you've made us to do in this world as image bearers of you. God, we pray for those who have embraced a destructive ideology, a belief, a system that, that it may be celebrated in this world, it may be held up as good in this world, but Lord, we know ultimately destroys souls, will destroy lives, will destroy eternity. So Lord, we pray that you would help us effectively push back against these lies. Help us to be effective in proclaiming the truth, in calling others into the truth. May we be people who see the power of God to bring people out of darkness, out of bondage to sin, out of these destructive things, into light and life with you, into conformity to the image of your Son, whom we worship, whom we look to for our own salvation, our own deliverance. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We don't deserve it any more than anyone else. So may you push that belief so deeply into our hearts that we overflow with sharing the gospel with others. Holy Spirit, work in us to embolden us as you did the early disciples to be faithful witnesses for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen.